Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After 18 years, America is at last outlining its drawdown from Afghanistan. Negotiations with the Taliban seem to be concluding, but attacks by the insurgents continue. These days, the country arguably represents the world's worst conflict. We ask where America's longest war went so wrong. And when's the last time you read, I mean actually really read, the terms and conditions before ticking that little box? Don't worry, barely anyone does. But our correspondent reckons that leads not only to worse deals for customers, it also breaks some basic economic principles. But first... It was Boris Johnson's first test as Prime Minister. He failed. The eyes to the right, 328. The nose to the left, 301. Not a good start, Boris. Last night, lawmakers, including senior members of his own party, inflicted a stunning defeat on his government. By a surprisingly large majority of 27, they voted to take control of today's parliamentary agenda. They'll push a bill that would stop Britain leaving the European Union with no deal in October and force the Prime Minister to ask for another extension to the Brexit deadline. Mr Johnson responded with characteristic belligerence. He expelled those in his party who had voted against him, including Sir Nicholas Soames, the grandson of Mr Johnson's idol Winston Churchill. And he said that if he were forced to request an extension to next month's deadline, he would call a general election. I don't want an election. The public don't want an election. I don't believe the right honourable gentleman wants an election. But if the House votes for this bill tomorrow, the public will have to choose who goes to Brussels on October the 17th to sort this out and take this country forward. Mr Johnson finds himself in a situation similar to that of Theresa May in 2017. With Brexit negotiations straining patience and loyalties, he'd be hoping an election would hand him a renewed, strengthened mandate. It didn't work out for Mrs. May, and it's not at all clear it would happen for him. Boris Johnson's first vote of his prime ministership, it looked as if he was going to lose it in the House of Commons, but he lost it by the really quite substantial majority of 27. John Pete is our long-suffering Brexit editor. And I don't think many people expected it to be that big. It included 21 conservative rebels who defied the whip, and he has now sacked them all as conservatives. So he's lost his majority in a single blow. And now that that's happened, what what happens today? What's the next step? The rebels will now introduce a bill, and they will try and pass it through the Commons in one day, and then it will go to the Lords. The purpose of the bill is to make it illegal to leave the European Union without a deal on October 31st. Boris Johnson says still that there is no way he would ever move that date of October 31st. And his answer to that conundrum 
is to have a general election before October the 31st. So he will try later today to persuade Parliament to agree that there should be a general election in mid-October. But why is calling a general election a way out for him? A general election might not solve his problem, but he believes that if there is a general election, he will fight it and say he's fighting for the people against Parliament, and he thinks he will win a substantial majority. Once he has a majority, which he doesn't have now, he can then revert to the idea of cancel this bill that he dislikes and say, I'm now going to take Britain out, either with a deal or without a deal, on October the 31st. So it's really his effort to get round the fact that in Parliament he has no majority, but it relies on him winning a majority in an election. And how do you think the general election would go if that comes to pass? Well, it's a gamble. Boris Johnson has a significant lead over Labour's Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn has been doing very badly in the in the polls. So on the face of it, it looks quite good for him. But he has on his right Nigel Farage's Brexit party. Nigel Farage does not trust Boris Johnson. He thinks that he will try to do a deal with Brussels, whereas Mr. Farage is insistent that Britain should leave without a deal at all. So he is not likely to strike a a full pact with Boris Johnson. And on the other side, the Conservatives could well lose seats to pro-EU parts of the country, such as London, Scotland, most obviously, where he's just lost the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, and the southwest of the country. And if you put those together, you'd have to say... It's a risk. He may well emerge with the largest party, but it's not at all clear that the Conservatives would have an absolute majority. You say that Nigel Farage doesn't trust Mr. Johnson, Labour doesn't trust Mr. Johnson, his own party doesn't trust him. It seems no one trusts Mr. Johnson. Is is that fair? Well, I think he's taken a very aggressive line since he became Prime Minister. And this business of, for instance, promising people he would not prorogue Parliament, suspend Parliament for a long period to get it out of the way, and then actually suspending Parliament for a long time to get it out of the way, the business of threatening and now actually implementing that threat to take away the Tory whip and deselect anybody who votes against the government, this coming from a prime minister who himself voted repeatedly against Theresa May's government, despite having been a minister in that government, and and at the same time saying that he's making big progress in Brussels towards a deal with the EU, which the EU frankly denies. The EU says there is no progress in Brussels and no new proposals have been put on the table by the British government. I think it's created an atmosphere in which nobody quite believes what Mr. Johnson says. He's very dynamic, he's very forceful, he's very optimistic. But a lot of people think they don't really know where he's going, they don't trust him, and I think that applies to many people in his own party as well as to other parties. Well, but some of the narrative has been that he is playing some sort of, you know, four-dimensional chess game and he's got a, a grand plan and perhaps, you know, we, we don't see the the machinations of what, what he's got up his sleeve. Do you think that might still be true or has he just simply lost control at this point? He certainly lost control of Parliament, but I guess that was not all that surprising when he started with a majority of only one. There are people who think there is a grand plan, either by him or by some of his advisers. The suspicion is that that grand plan is simply to leave the European Union with no deal. And it's been clear for a long time that there is no parliamentary majority for that, that as far as we can tell, the majority of voters do not support that, and the consequences of leaving with no deal could be highly disruptive. So he has a lot of opposition, if that is his plan, but maybe he's still going to try and do it. I, I hate to ask you to do this because I've asked you to do this so many times before, but let's have another one. What do you think is going to happen? I think we are heading for an election. One way or another, if, if a government loses its majority by such a large margin, they really cannot go on governing. And I think we are, therefore, going to have an election in October. 
And my suspicion is that we will end up with another hung parliament with no party having an overall majority, but probably with Boris Johnson's Conservatives as the biggest party. What happens after that, I think, is anybody's guess. Well, that puts us right back where we were. And it would mean that the general election doesn't really resolve the Brexit problem that faces us, and we just have to go back to the beginning again. In which case, I suspect we'll be talking again soon. John, thank you very much. Thank you. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. When America invaded Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, it was seeking to defeat the Taliban, who had sheltered al-Qaeda, and to forge a better Afghanistan. And now, the Taliban will pay a price. By destroying camps and disrupting communications, we will make it more difficult for the terror network to train new recruits and coordinate their evil plans. In addition to an American victory, President George Bush promised Afghans would benefit. At the same time, the oppressed people of Afghanistan will know the generosity of America and our allies. As we strike military targets, we will also drop food, medicine, and supplies to the starving and suffering men and women and children of Afghanistan. Two years on, in 2003, he was still looking to a bright future. But 18 years after the invasion, with the Taliban in control of much of the country and violence at record levels, America is edging out of the war. There's little talk of victory or freedom. On Monday, an American envoy appeared on Afghan television to announce the outline of a deal with the Taliban. Zalmay Kalilzad, who's America's envoy to the Afghan peace talks, said America would withdraw 5,400 of its 14,000 troops in Afghanistan within five months of a deal with the Taliban being signed. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. He said it was conditional on things on the ground, the progress of uh, the deal, how the Taliban uh, adhered to the agreement as well, but he didn't give a great number of details. He probably diluted America's demand for a ceasefire, saying only that there would be a reduction in violence in just two provinces in Afghanistan. But he did say and made very clear any return to the Islamic Emirate uh, would be unacceptable. And the Islamic Emirate is the name that the Taliban gave to their government before 2001. So he said, uh, we are leaving, uh, it will be conditional, and we're not going to give the Taliban a blank check. Not everyone is thrilled. The Afghan government hasn't been present during negotiations between America and the Taliban. Member of Parliament Shukriya Ezekhel insisted to The Economist that the government be consulted before a deal went ahead. Well, when the Taliban have conditions, the Afghan government, which is an elected government, we also have our conditions. So Mr. Zalmay Khalilzad should consult the Afghan government and should consider the conditions of the Afghan government while talking about peace. And even as Mr. Khalilzad was breaking the news of the agreement on Monday, Taliban detonated a bomb in Kabul, killing at least 30 people. Speaking in the city last night, people seemed only tentatively optimistic. 
I think that the peace process is good. It's good. Zulma Khalid was responsible for that. He's proceeding that. But uh, maybe he is not. Maybe the peace key will not be in his hand because uh, we cannot trust the Taliban. Taliban uh, and one side you're uh, sitting on the negotiation table and on the other side you're uh, fighting and killing the Afghans. Shishank, we're, we're still seeing these terrible attacks by the Taliban. Why is that not enough of a deal breaker for the Americans? Well, the Americans accepted a long time ago that the Taliban were going to continue to fight and talk at the same time. And in some ways, the Americans and the Afghans believe the same thing. They also think that in order to have a strong negotiating hand, they shouldn't stop fighting. They have to keep pressing the Taliban. And so airstrikes have jumped up. Government-backed special forces operations have jumped up. And both sides believe that you fight and you talk at the same time. But what grounds are there to believe that the Taliban's attacks would stop even after a deal is struck? Well, I think the the optimist would say if the Taliban don't stop attacking, then the withdrawal won't happen, at least in the in the limited areas that they have said they will reduce violence. I think what the cynic would say is the Taliban may reduce violence for a while, but once American forces have dwindled, once they've gone down to very small numbers, they may ramp up again, banking on the fact that actually the Americans are not going to send in thousands of forces back into the country, they're not going to get entangled into a conflict that they've just left, and they certainly won't do so if the presidential elections in America in 2020 are approaching. So we don't know if the attacks would stop. In a way, uh, we're going to find out in the next in the next five months or so. Well, what about more broadly? What What is life like for ordinary Afghans at this point? Well, I think most Westerners probably think the Afghan war was at its worst in 2010, 2011, when there were lots of international forces in the country. Obama had just had a surge of troops into Afghanistan. Well, that isn't a patch on what we see in Afghanistan today. Since NATO forces drew down and handed over control to Afghan forces, we have seen record-breaking amounts of violence. In 2018, we had about 25,000 people killed. And I think what most people don't realise is that's more than the 20,000 who were killed last year in Syria. Uh, Afghanistan is the world's worst conflict. And I presume that has knock-on effects for civil society and then the sort of, you know, international development aid towards education, towards uh, more civil rights and freedoms. It does. Security uh, has, has a huge effect on development, on, on civil rights, all of those things. People are poorer than they were in the 1950s. Uh, the withdrawal of US money, of aid money over time may cause a huge vacuum in the Afghan economy that will have major ramifications. In areas where the international community spent a huge amount on opening schools, opening clinics, particularly in parts of the south of the country. As the Taliban have returned or other insurgents have returned, many of those schools and clinics have closed, so they were not very durable gains. I mean, on on the matter of rights and freedoms, one of the most notorious features of the, the Taliban's leadership was how hard they made it, how hard they made life for, for women. What's the situation like for women in Afghanistan now? Of course, if you're a woman, this is especially concerning. Women's rights in Afghanistan depend on security. It depends where you are in the country. But compared to the the life under the Taliban before 2001, there have been substantial gains. And I think what they are really worried about is that as the Taliban negotiate with the Afghan government or negotiate with Afghan civil society representatives for what the future of the country will look like, things like the rights of women, the rights of women to be educated, their dress, their, their their social rights, those will all 
be sacrificed in the name of a power-sharing deal to stabilize the country. And, and this is, is what Afghanistan looks like after years of uh, international military presence, tons of financial aid uh, thrown in to try to, to, to stabilize things, to, to build up civil society. Is there, is there a view on what had been done wrong, what could have been done differently? I think a lot of experts who know Afghanistan very well would look right back to the early days, weeks after the invasion in 2001, when the Taliban was running scared. They were scattered, they were broken. And many Taliban members said, look, please give us security, give us sanctuary in exchange for us putting down our arms, in exchange for us stopping the fight. And the United States and others said, no, we're not going to do that. They chased many of those members, arrested them, took some of them to Guantanamo Bay, locked them up, detained them, uh, treated them like international terrorists who were effectively equivalent to al-Qaeda. And I think a lot of people feel that actually, if they had cut a generous deal with the Taliban in 2001, when the Taliban were weak that you would never have seen the kind of resurgence of the Taliban and you could potentially have built a, a state that was less centralised, that concentrated a bit less power in Kabul, in the, in the presidency, and one that might have had a slightly better chance of riding out these times. Shishong, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. and conditions apply. It could be the most morale-sapping four-word phrase of modern times, along with the plane is delayed and you're trending on Twitter. But whether you read them or not, terms and conditions do matter, and they shape markets. Facebook has 3,200 words in its online terms and conditions. Philip Coggan writes about business for The Economist. But those 3,200 words point to other sections. There's one of the points you have to look up 11 further conditions that may apply to you. So if you were being absolutely conscientious about reading all the things that apply to you on Facebook, you'd be reading probably as much as a daily newspaper just to get through it all. The problem with terms and conditions generally is they are daunting. You can hear them at the end of radio ads where people speak very, very quickly to get through them all. The Consumer Association, which publishes the magazine, which did a test of travel insurance policies and asked 24 people to read the terms and conditions. Quite educated people, lawyers and so on, and then asked a series of questions about whether or not they understood all the difficulty. And only four out of the people got top marks. Quite a lot of them got a quarter to a third of the answers wrong. But those four are kind of important in this in this whole mechanism, right? If four people know it, then they can raise the flag about something that is untoward in the in the in the fine print. Well, that is one theory. Say you don't need everybody to understand. You need a few sort of outliers to spot this. But a different set of researchers looked into how many people bought software, how many of them read the license agreement, and they found that only one or two out of every thousand shoppers read the license agreement. And that of those, most examined only a small part of the agreement. So there are probably within those agreements, a large part that nobody ever reads. And so the theory that, you know, the alert consumers will spot those things, that's not likely to be true. And all told, you think this is something of a market failure? It is, because if people don't trust the terms and conditions, then they're likely not to pick the best product for them. 
And economics is built around the idea of you know, freely operating individuals with lots of information, picking the product, and the best product wins, and that's competition, makes everything rosy. Another academic study looked at savings products. Now, savings products are pretty simple. You really think you want the best interest rate possible. But they conducted a trial with 124,000 savers and offered them information about rival products. And people were very disinclined to switch, even when it was absolutely clear to them that one rate was higher than another. So in those circumstances, because people are overwhelmed by these ideas of terms and conditions, they're unwilling to switch. That means the market does not operate efficiently. That means it's possible that an inefficient producer may come to dominate a market, and that is not good for the economy. Well, what's the fix, though? Because one purpose of the, the terms and conditions is to, well, a bit of bottom covering, I suppose, on the, on the part of the, the seller. It, it's sort of a necessary evil, isn't it? It is. Well, one possibility would be to limit the terms and conditions that producers can set. So if there are unfair terms and conditions, if you sign up for this, we'll take your firstborn child. But if, if there are things that no consumer could reasonably be expected to have agreed to, then they should be made illegal. So it's got to be regulators insisting that unfair terms and conditions should not apply. Philip, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.